Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got six members, six questions, and six answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the sincere to the silly. Let's do a roll call. We've been away for a while. It's been four weeks or so since we've done a recording. Uh, We had the Doppelganger show, which was the last show that we put out. And um, that was a lot of fun. But as a group, as an original squad, we, we haven't been together for a while. So I'm curious. Let's do a roll call and find out what's new. Hey, I'm Stephanie. I'm a doctoral candidate at Kent State University, a practicing clinical counselor and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. And it does feel like forever. And it's really great to see everybody. And the last little piece is I'm a new mom. And uh, we got little baby Nora recording her first podcast with us. Yay, Nora. That's awesome stuff. So Eric Perry, I'm a clinical faculty member at Southern New Hampshire University and co-host of the Tech Savvy Professor. Doppelganger show was so much fun and actually had a visit from another one of our regular cast members. Jen came out uh, our way and, and got to see her in person and visit with Nikki, who's still bragging about her popularity on the show uh, from you know last week and uh, was a little worried she was going to take my spot. But, My daughter wants her as a regular, Eric. Yeah. Well, I think she's prepared for it. Yeah. Okay. We'll get her on union scale. Right. <laughs> well, admittedly, huge Nikki fan. And I'll also admit that Eric's daughter, Lucy, wants to be on the show. So, you know, there could be another show out there with like your kids being involved. I said, I'm going to need to borrow one. Luckily, Eric has two. He, one of his could come by me, which would be fantastic. Either one is fine. Either one, both. They'll, they'll pencil you in. I, I'd take either one. They both have great personalities. Um, I'm Jen Cook, assistant professor, counselor education and counseling psychology at Marquette University. And what's new with me, I got to see Eric as we're talking about here. But also, I don't think I've announced on the show that I was promoted with tenure. And although I'm still carrying my assistant professor moniker along with me, um, it will it will be changed in the next few months. Um, so that's an exciting piece of news for me. I'm um, Elliot Ingersoll, professor of counseling at Cleveland State University. Way to go, Jen and Stephanie. So glad to both of your news. Uh, My doppelganger went to prom yesterday. So there's some genetic diversity. I fathered a child who went to prom. I was like, that's very cool. And he looked very good. I think prom skips a generation, actually. That's probably it. (laughs) But it was it was a delight to see them all, you know, and they're dressed up and such. Uh, it was quite nice. Yeah. But other than some deja vu, I'm kind of like really excited that this is finals week at university. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting into some more creative writing and uh, uh, some more podcasts. I missed you all. It's really good to be with you. I missed everyone too. And while we were away, I uh, have an announcement that I'm the newest doctor in the room, Dr. Gina Martin. So successfully defended my dissertation and recently just graduated from University of Iowa. I'm also affiliate faculty at Northwestern University and co-host of Supervision Time. Gina used to be part of the solution and now she's part of the problem. Stephanie, you got the first question. Mm, All right. So Have your ideas of what a good student is, have they changed since you became a faculty member? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question. I really think it has. I have always imagined students, I guess, uh, you know, my graduate student, doctoral student days is just being prepared and well-studied, understanding, conceptualizing, skilled, you know, really working towards those things. I think as a faculty member, it's a little bit different. Um, I really look forward to engaging with students who are really curious, uh, who pick a little bit, who can respond. I use a lot of humor in the classroom. I enjoy having fun doing what I'm doing. And students who can really engage in that way, be curious and learn something, who aren't just kind of sitting and learning and and going through the motions, I think for me, conceptually is the good student I'm looking for, are the ones that I'm most uh, intrigued and engaged by. 
I would say for me, the things that I thought I should have been doing as a student are the exact same things that I expect my students to do in my classroom. So no, I think that they probably do them about at the rate, maybe a little bit lower than what I did in terms of doing all the readings and being engaged like Eric is talking about. But, you know, I was a pretty, I was a pretty on point student. I, you know, engaged and I was interested. And I think I recognized by the time I was in my second master's degree program that you can't manufacture that kind of interest or engagement, that you actually have to be interested to get engaged. And so I think that one thing that might have changed is like my expectations at times for students that may not be as highly motivated or as highly interested. They can still be great counselors and they don't have to read every single word um, in order to do that. In fact, I mean, you know, sidebar here, I legitimately teach my students how not to read every word because there's way too much to read. And so I'm pretty realistic with them about teaching them how to pre-read and to do some speed reading techniques so they can actually at least get a summary of everything. But, you know, one of the things that my graduate faculty when I was in my master's in counseling did is that they treated us as if we were professionals already. And I think that I bring those expectations into my classroom um, because I do expect them to be professionals already. And I hold them to um, a pretty high level of of uh, creative thinking and work and those types of things, because I really do believe that because my faculty held a high bar for me, it was something for me to work toward. And I feel like when I do that with my students, you know, there's a balance of not putting it too high, but I think that those expectations that were put on me really drove me further and helped me to learn more deeply. And I continue that in my own classroom today. You know, I used to think that a good student was a straight A student. You know, they would read all the material. I don't know if they did or not, but they it, they certainly seem to have the knowledge to be successful. And that always helps. Reading material always helps. But they would often, I, not often, but they were also at risk of still not being able to form good relationships. And so more and more from a counseling perspective, I, I think a good student has had diverse life experiences. And the younger you are, generally the less diverse life experiences that you have. Maturity and thinking, flexibility, and kind of intuition based on experience. And someone with good judgment. And and that all plays out, I think, in becoming a good counselor versus just getting a good grade. So I'm more excited by those students who um, kind of express that um, depth of experience and depth of thinking. And I don't mean depth of experience in terms of, oh, I worked uh, as an intake officer here and I worked as, yeah, all that helps. But I just mean good life experiences that they've reflected on and they've learned something from. Yeah, there there were two things that stood out for me. And Marty, one of the things he you had just said really resonates with me. For personality theories, I used to just do the traditional paper and midterm and final. And now what I do is I put them in groups of three or four and I have them act out a skit of some personality theory. And the rest of the class has to guess, well, which theory are they doing and who's playing which element of each theory? And I mean, I, there are so many budding thespians in counseling programs. It is delightful and they have so much fun with it. And so yeah, I think looking at ways to to draw out their creative energies, that's important to me. I think the other thing is that the tables got turned a wee bit in that now I use a couple of my own books for two classes and students will say, um, Dr. I, on page 162, you said this, and then they'll read it to me. And I'm like, shite, I said that? Huh. Ah, I might not have been thinking clearly. What do you think? You know, and so we're kind of like, we do a back and forth. And it's just like, it's fun when you freeze your thoughts and philosophies into print, then um, it's really, uh, things change. And these students that, that we have, they will point those things out. And I love that. Yeah, something that really resonates with me is something that Jen said, and it's that engagement. So previously, I never used to, think that good students were the ones that challenged professors. I never used to think that good students were the ones that, you know, went against the grain or anything like that. And now that I am a 
instructor. One of the main things that I've noticed is the students that are engaging, the students that like Elliot, you just mentioned to have those creative juices flowing. That's when you really get to see like these people are going to be excellent clinicians. And that's a beautiful thing. It's less about, you know, turning in the grade on or the paper on time to get the good grade and moving through it without having any of that intellectual back and forth. So I think my, my main thing is just that engagement piece, seeing that they care. So I don't know who listened, you know, what listeners we have right now that also listen to the doppelganger show. Um, but you might have noticed that my dad was a he might be a little rigid at times with, with what he thinks might, you know, he's doing, but he's an engineer. Right. So like that's totally acceptable and that's where he should be. So I kind of grew up with the you just do everything that you're told to do kind of situation. And that stayed with me for a long while, I think, until maybe, you know, and I never well, I guess let me go back for a second, because I also never understood the students or how to be like those students who wouldn't do things in that ordered way with the should in quotation marks. Um, but they would challenge instructors or teachers and, you know, still be well liked and be be thought of, as, you know, and I would see that. And I'm like, I don't know how, how to challenge something, but also still maintain that likability. Or, or that engagement. But as you get older, you, you do develop that. So I kind of, I really appreciate those comments. Um, but it, it did, it did change, I think, more with the loosening up and letting go with my own expectations of what a good student would be similar to what has been described. So it's, it, it's changed a bit, but it's also kind of stayed the same. I suppose it's just kind of morphed into one cohesive idea of what a student might be or what you're looking for, because definitely, straight A's, especially in counseling profession, doesn't mean very much necessarily. It, it, it's pretty, I won't say it's worthless. You got to be, a, you know, you have to learn things and practice and, and understand what you're doing and the choices that you're making, but it does not reflect how well you're going to uh, make those connections with, with clients and, and form those relationships. So I guess I'm kind of on par with everybody else here. So thank you, Eric. Next question. All right. So changing the tone a bit, what was the last thing that made you laugh unexpectedly? So I discovered last night that there was a new episode of Call the Midwife, which I only got into because it was on Netflix. And I never thought it'd be something I'd be interested in because personally, I've never been all that interested in childbirth. Um, and anybody who knows me knows I haven't given birth to a child. So it's not, you know, something that I gravitate toward naturally. But I'll tell you, I fell in love with the characters on this show, but this is one of those shows that you cannot just watch in the background. I don't know if you all are these kind of people who watch TV just in, in the background while you're doing something on the computer or whatever. I do that with a lot of shows, but this is not one you can do that with because the Brits love sneaking in funny things that are just sort of hidden in the background and that you only catch if you're actually watching it. So last night I was watching this new episode. It was the 2020 Christmas episode and it it was delightful. But at the end, they had brought Sister Monica Joan home from the hospital. She had fallen and broken something and they got her back into the house. And one of the things that Sister Monica Joan was demanding was to have the TV and wanting the TV in her room. So they moved it in there. But the problem was, was the reception wasn't that good. And so... All of a sudden you just see, and it, there's a narrator in the background on the show. I don't know if anybody watches it, but anyway, the narrator's prattling on about something and they pan to the TV and then the narrator says, and everyone had their own special job or something to this degree. And another one of the nuns is holding the bunny ears up in a very precarious situation. And I bust out laughing so hard for like 30 straight seconds in my house by myself because the look on this nun's face holding the bunny ears was so hilarious. And I'm like, this is why I love British humor because they just sneak these little things in here. It's totally unobvious, unassuming. And that's my style of humor. So, I mean, I can be overt, but I love the covert too. So that was a long story to say. It was last night, Eric. Well, um, I, I, I can't go into a long story about and tell you the joke. I can tell you that it came from my wife, Aileen. Um, we have this ritual now. I get up early um, and start to do some work, have my first cup of coffee, and then she gets up usually after me. And uh, when she gets up, it's time for us to have coffee together and talk. And I can't remember what it was she said, but it 
I burst out laughing. And she's a funny person, but she's been retired. And I think, you know, usually our morning conversations were about the grind we have to deal with at work. And she's kind of wrapped up at the good stuff and also the difficult stuff she has to do. But since her retirement, it's almost like her wit is so much more fluid and she's so much more relaxed. And I was I was reviewing my upcoming day and she did this connection to something. She said something and I just laughed and immediately thought, I wished I would have said that. So that was the thing that made me laugh unexpectedly. But it also made me think a little bit more about my wife and how she's enjoying her retirement. And it's kind of bringing out these marvelous parts in her that she's always had, but it's just been so, it's been so fun to be around her with this. Yeah. So mine happened a a few days ago. We have a little kid in the neighborhood and I I think he's five or six and he's got kind of a squeaky voice and he, he starts a lot of his sentences with, Hey, and ends them with, huh? And I was edging. I had a straight edge hoe. I was just edging the sidewalk by hand to even it out, you know. And um, I I hear him. He has a little uh, foot pedal car. And I hear him, wum, 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 coming up. Then I feel something hit me in the back of my legs about calf height, you know. And I turn around, and it's, it's this little, little kid. And he looks at me. He's got his fists on his hips. And he goes, hey, what's the big idea, huh? And I just start laughing. Because you have to hear it, but it's really funny. And then I'm laughing and he goes, hey, what's so funny, huh? And I'm out for the count and I can't explain to him what's so funny, but that was it. These are great. Um, So I'm going to get a little personal on us here tonight. So recently, and all of you know that I've been on the job market looking for things and trying to figure out where we're going to be and and what that's going to look like. And it's been a really hard process, really hard. And I completely did not anticipate how difficult this would be. So my husband and I, we went to visit one of the potential places that I had received an offer. And we were driving around to see if this was something that we could visualize ourselves living somewhere that we could see ourselves being for a long time and all of this stuff. And we got back to the house that night and we were both laying there in bed talking about this. And it, it occurred to us that this was actually a place that we probably could see ourselves. And so it felt like the decision was kind of made. And we started to sob. We were so upset because we were leaving our home and our house where we had all these memories of bringing our daughter home from the hospital, which Steph, you get now. Um, all of these emotions. And we were talking about like every dent in the floor and how we were going to miss that. And we were both sobbing. And none of you know Don, but Don doesn't really have emotions and he's married to me, a counselor. Um, but he was even crying. And so I'm like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. We're both sobbing. And I'm like shocked that he's sobbing. And then we mentioned our barista that we have here at Starbucks within a high V, which is like the grocery store coffee stand. And I'm really good friends with him. And it occurred to me that we are sitting here crying over our barista And he doesn't even know anything about this. And I just could not stop laughing then. So I went from sobbing to laughing and realizing that I am going to miss my barista in this upcoming move that I have. So, yeah, I think a lot of my stories moving forward right now are going to have probably be related to to the baby in some way, Um, because, I mean, that's where my life is at the moment. But anyway, yeah, after like a long, long night. From the hospital, we were in the hospital for a couple days, and then we left, and we were both just exhausted. And my husband's with with Nora, and you know, just kind of messing around with her. But then he's like, "Steph, come here, come here, look at this, look at this," and and he just holds her up, and he just goes, "Hi, mommy, hi, hi, mommy," and it, it just cracked me up, and it was so hilarious and funny and simple. And I loved it. And it was just, it was really cool to have that. So simple, but, but that's what it was. So I'll, I'll say kids are kind of an unending source of this. And my son um, is seven and very literal and, and you'll see why he 
is having a little issue with his hair. So we get him head and shoulders and, you know, just explain to him that you need to massage it into your head and you need to make sure you rinse really good. And, um, he's like, all right, you know, he's, I turn on the shower for him cause we gotta get the temperature right. And then he does everything else himself. Right. Real proud. You know, I can do my shower. I can get myself dressed. You know, he's, he's all about it. About a week goes by and he's gone through the bottle and I'm like, but how are we out of shampoo right now? And, and he's like, um, I don't know. He's like, I've been doing it right. I put it on my head and I scrub and then I put it on my shoulders and I, and I scrub and, and I'm like, well, but it's just for your hair. And he's like, oh, but it says head and shoulders on the bottle. And I, I truly appreciate his willingness to just follow directions and whatever. And he was so earnest, like I couldn't laugh <laughs> to his face, <laughs> but I had to, you know, just kind of walk away for a second and chuckle and then uh, get back to it. So I had to buy another bottle of head and shoulders. Hopefully this one lasts a little longer. All right. So I'm going to flip over to an academia question. What is the ideal number of students to be enrolled in core counseling courses? So excluding PREC and internship, because we've already got a number on that one, but the rest of the core counseling curriculum. I don't have much to say on this. I, you know, and I thought about it and I'm like eight people online. Um, Cause if you have less than that, um, it just seems like people are struggling for diversity of ideas. If you have more than that, you've got a lot of people sitting there silently and not engaged. So, uh, you know, I thought my immediate experience is everything's online. So eight, eight people online getting back in the classroom, which we'll be doing, I think, in the fall, 14. Um, when it, it, it allows you to kind of walk around the room, allows you to get to know students better than if you have 20 or 25 in the room. So I just did it purely on numbers and my gut reaction to it. I'm at the other end of the spectrum, especially if there's a lot of lecture modules, especially because I've had half of my people face to face this semester and half on Zoom. I have been fine with like 40 to 60 students uh, and I'm probably guilty of what they call edutainment where I'm trying to kind of, you know, it's kind of a combination between lecturing, stand-up comedy and multimedia. And, but especially because a lot of my classes, we've got multiple disciplines in the class. So I try to throw out things and then people from different, you know, perspectives will pipe up school psychology, one thing, clinical counseling students will say another, clinical psych students will say another. And I've really come to enjoy that. Um, yeah, that's edutainment. <laughs> and so I, but I, 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 you know, obviously for a skills class, like counseling lab, I couldn't do that, but, you know, for these larger classes where the lecture components are a huge part, I really have started to enjoy the, the, the larger groups. And I, I know that we're being looked at for our faculty to student credit hour ratios. So I also look at it as a kind of form of job insurance. Yeah, never hurts. For me, so I haven't done a whole lot of teaching in person. I've done a lot online. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important is about 10 students. And the reason for it is I have one section um, that has six students that varies. So sometimes it's like four to six students. And that one gets a little painful sometimes um, in drawing things out and people feel like they've talked and people feel like they've engaged and it still feels like a long time to sit and stare at each other's faces. Um, but when I have in my other classes, I, I usually have about 10 to 12 students. And that seems like a really good amount. I've also taught larger classes and I feel like sometimes it's very easy for students to disengage and just turn that camera off or fall asleep or whatever. Um, so I think about 10 would be my my ideal for some of the same reasons. You get to know the students. They feel like they can engage. They feel like they get to know you and that kind of thing. 42. I do have to throw in, though, I've been able to memorize the names of all of my students from 40 to 50. And that's just a weird thing that my brain can do. And that helps a lot. 
especially, but there's also, there's always like four or five tailors in the class now that never used to happen, but you know, it's like, I don't know. There's little tricks you can play in the, that that'll kind of keep people engaged. Sorry, interrupted signing off. <laughs> no, you're fine. I was just, I was making a joke um, where, where 42 would be the ideal number of students. I guess it, those in all seriousness depends on the, the subject matter of the class um, and whether it is more of a content based class or a practice based class. Um, I think if you have, you're doing more role play and practicing skills, um, you know, you, you probably want a few more so people, you know, could get together. I mean, content wise, you can have a larger audience, a larger number of students to deliver that content, but for practicing and, and all of that, um, lower numbers, maybe no more than 16 or so. So everyone can pair up. I'll make it an even number. Um, but I agree with everything people have said so far. So, uh, okay. Uh, next, uh, next person. So I, I don't know if there's a trophy for most obnoxious answer, but I'm going to try for it. I, I, <sighs> So part of my pre-academia career was in curriculum design, instructional design. And uh, I have pretty strong thoughts on the matter and that I, I think how the course is put together, developed, and meant to be taught plays a big part in how effective it can be depending on the number of students you have. If you design a course and, and a method of instruction that can fit, um, you know, 40 or 50 in a content class, that's great, but it's going to be more lecture-based. There's going to be less engagement that you can control or moderate or personalize. You know, there's definitely uh, elements that you have to tailor specific to the the enrollment that you anticipate in the course. And that's uh, really important. Format is a really big deal. Something that's going to be hybrid, flip, online, have some type of component that's going to be synchronous with a certain number of students, if your objective is to engage, it is going to be a little bit different, um, even difficult with higher numbers, just depending on how you design that course, right? So I think you have to be intentional about how that course is designed, how you intend to teach it and the elements there to fit the enrollment. I'm less concerned about what the enrollment is, um, particularly with content courses. When it comes to skill courses, that's a whole different story. I think really to facilitate a skills course to be able to evaluate and, and intervene in ways that are really meaningful, that number grows too much beyond you know, 12, 16. Um, you're going to have start having some problems. And uh, I've seen some schools overcome this in, in really interesting ways through co-teaching and, and having TAs and those types of things to really help. Um, but that process, that's so individualized in terms of what the needs of the students are to grow and develop that it's hard to, to get beyond that, I think. So I know it's maybe more than the question asked for, but it, it's something near and dear, I think, to me uh, and, and just my experience and the things I'm really interested in. And so why was that obnoxious? Because I didn't feel like it was obnoxious, Eric. I mean, I, I feel like it's on point because the course design plays such a huge role. And I'm, I'm hearing what you all are saying. And also, I think that it's interesting that nobody mentioned um, evaluation and grading in response to their answers, because I think that that's where I really run into the rub with large class sizes is the ability to give feedback to a ginormous class. And in that in ginormous in my mind is 40 or more um, in order to give them individualized productive feedback on which they can build further, grow, et cetera, especially because I, I do design a lot of my courses that are, you know, working toward multiple domains of not awareness, knowledge, skills, and actions, you know, that's that a lot of that stuff needs feedback. It's not a test and testing is important for our students, but I think that there's a whole lot more to it than just testing. So when you have 38 people in group class, sure, there's creative ways you can do it. And I have found creative ways to do it, but I have not found creative ways of uh, grading that amount of work myself 
and being able to keep that high caliber and keep it moving because you got to get to the next thing because most people are not only teaching one course, they're teaching multiple. So that idea of being able to give feedback is where I start coming in with the number um, because we want students to learn and grow. And I don't think if I, if I'm consistently teaching 40 students, that means a lot of dang tests because they grade themselves. So I've got the um, next question, another departure. Um, what did your 15-year-old self imagine you'd be doing right now? Oh, that poor bastard. Well, I think he thought for sure. He was hoping, I hope I'm at least six, six feet tall, 180 pounds maybe, because I was, you know, and it was just kind of, but I also, I, I, at that point, I had discovered playing music and playing guitar, and I wanted to just take that as far as I could take it. And I, I'd be happy to tell him now, we really took it as far as we could, we could take it. I did it till I was like 56. So I'm like, you know, 41 years, we didn't get paid for much of it, you know, but it was really fun to play. So I was just like, I think, I think he would be okay with that. Um, the drummer for Rush, Neil Peart, said, you always want to... Um, be accountable to your 15 year old self. And I, I hope I have been. Oh, mine is not nearly as inspiring as Elliot's. Um, when I was 15, I, my mom was a stay at home mom growing up. And so that was all I really knew and all I really saw. So I legitimately thought I would be a stay at home mom right now. And I would have many more children than just Millie. Uh, and <laughs> that did not pan out. I am not cut out to be a stay at home mom at all. And I'm also not built to have babies. So also not happening. Well, not this. At this moment, my 15 year old self did not think I'd be uh, recording podcast and, and being with all these great people and kind of starting out here. Um, I think she definitely thought I'd be on a boat somewhere doing marine biology work and research. That's, that's where I had been focused for a long while. Um, she also thought, no, 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 she didn't think that. So, so being a marine biologist, <laughs> being a marine biologist, um, and, and sailing in the water, studying whales, something big, big, big mammal in the water. Um, my parents knew somebody who they went to school with who was like studying a blue, oh, was it the blue oyster? Which is kind of cool because a blue oyster cult. But other than that, it's like, why would you? <laughs> Sorry, um, sleepless nights. But, you know, studying like those blue oysters or something like that. But I wanted to study whales and be out in the ocean and just be peaceful and um, kind of following that that dream. If it's any help, my 15-year-old self argued with himself all the time, right? I, I, I think for me, I was really into the criminal justice thing. I, I thought I was going to be a police officer. I was going to be uh, in the military most likely. I would have been, I think, fourth, fifth generation, uh, some first generation not military be because of an injury that happened later. But that's how I kind of saw things go. I was, I was going to spend, you know, maybe ten years in the military, get out, be a police officer, or somebody who, uh, you know, helps. It was about helping. That was the thematic thing. But I didn't think about it in any other terms, and kind of found this along the way. So I, I think I, I saw myself in a much different place than where I am now. I don't think that my 15-year-old self looked to the future very much. I think that I looked at hopefully getting out of my hometown, teeny tiny little place, less than 5,000 people. I think I wanted something else, but I don't, I don't think my 15 year old self knew what that was. You know, people ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I think at the time I probably really wanted to be a travel agent, which was like kind of still a thing, a big thing. Like there was a travel agency like next to Publix and like I would go in there and get like brochures and things for like other countries and places you could travel just because like I could imagine myself doing that. But I recognized that like, if you told people that they just kind of like looked at you with some screwed up look on their face, like that, isn't really a job or something. So I started telling people I wanted to be an architect because nobody knew what that 
like what an architect does, except for like draw plans. I mean, who really knows what an architect does? I have no idea, even to this day. Um, and I have like zero artistic ability. So the fact that I was telling people that shit is hilarious because I had probably zero aptitude for it, but none of it seemed real. I mean, I was in food set, um, and those are ways that I made money. And so I think I probably expected I would still be in food service of some sort when I was this age. Um, and frankly, at times that's incredibly tempting, um, to go in, you do your job and you go home. But I'm not sure my 15 year old self, she'd probably be blown away because the vision was not really there. Um, not to go too dark, but the vision just really wasn't there. All interesting uh, answers. Um, now I, I kind of imagine you all as 15 year olds. For me, 15 would have been 1972. Um, and I wanted to be a spaceman. Uh, you know, 2001 had come out and I just watched that this week. What a, what an incredible movie. Um, 2001 had come out five years earlier. I grew up just following the space race and, um, you know, I thought this would, this is where I wanted to go some places, um, until I realized the only way I was going to get there was to be in the military. Generally, you know, the Navy or Air Force, and there is no way that was happening. We were a year away from uh, ending and getting out of Vietnam. Uh, and so I kind of that that 15 year old dream got squashed. And I started reading a book called The Making of a Surgeon and thought this is what I would do when I grow up. I'd go and become a doctor. Um maybe most likely a surgeon, heart surgeon, I think was what I was thinking. But obviously I'm not there. I'm working on people's, uh, people's brains instead of their heart. Well, maybe both, maybe I'm working on their brains and their hearts, but in different ways. Elliot, you've got the next question. Oh yeah. And I just want to edit. You can Marty, you can edit this out if you want to, but I wanted to tell stuff. There's a real sweet spot with children. I think I heard this from a comedian once there's a point where they're learning to walk, but they still drink from little bottles or sippy cups. You put the sippy cup or bottle in a wee paper bag. Hours of fun, you know, because they'll be, you know, they'll swing from the paper bag bottle. And then they'll like walk around. My son, he used to pretend he was conducting an orchestra and he'd go, whoa, you know, and he'd take a swig. <laughs> so just throwing that out there. Anyway, I feel like a series of TikTok videos in the making. <laughs> It's a hoot, I'm telling you. <laughs> and lots of calls from CPS if you put those on TikTok. Probably. Anyway, my question is, uh, and there's a parenthetical part, which I will hold off until the uh, after everyone's answered, but are there career counselors you know who actually do career counseling? So I... I love this question because I did my practicum and internship in my doc program in a career center, career counseling center. And I was the only counselor there. <laughs> so people do career counseling. They call themselves career counselors, but I, I think they get different types of degrees and they don't do counseling. So it's, it's just not the same thing. We're comparing apples and oranges. Yes. So, so I, in preparation for this, about 30 seconds ago, I did a Google search, just career counselors near me, just to see like what would pop up. And it looks like there were two. Um, but I did see a lot just kind of glancing at the results um, that a lot of the hits kind of named people who are life coaches that did career counseling. So they weren't you know, like Gina was saying, they aren't necessarily counselors, but they say they're career counselors, but it's life coaching and, and, and things. But I did find one uh, social worker and one PhD, but I don't know any personally. I can't say some of my best friends are career counselors. Well, I'll say this. I, I feel personally attacked, right? I am pretty sure this is Elliot just coming after me or something. I, <laughs> So I, I did quite a bit of career counseling, but I did it. Uh, I worked for an EAP with a hospital where family and friends are, well, not friends, but family were 
were able to take part in the EAP services there. And a large portion of my clients that would come in were dealing with career issues or um, mostly displacement, right? So the one of the employees at the, the hospital that I worked at would um, recommend their their family member come in for career counseling to, to help find something. It was something explicitly listed by the EAP. I will say this in terms of being passionate about career counseling. What I like about career counseling is that it's it's fluffy, right? The, the theories have rainbows and, and just pretty images and graphs and colors. And, you know, it's it's such a departure from our normal kind of thing that I, I really enjoy teaching it. I have a lot of fun with it. As for, you know, do I know a lot of counselors that truly engage in career counseling is like their, you know, linchpin approach? Eh, not very many. I am interested to hear Marty's response when we get around that way. Um, I think he might have a word or two to say about it, but that's, that's my piece. Jen. I know a few career counselors. I don't know how passionate they are. I mean, they're not creating the rainbows or anything. Um, You know, they're your everyday boots on the ground uh, career counselors. I will say this though, maybe I'm gonna take this the wrong way, but I think that there are two types of counseling that every counselor does without calling themselves this, which is one is a career counselor. If you think you're never doing any career counseling as a counselor, you're off your rocker. And the second is an addictions counselor because addictions are everywhere. And if you think you're never doing addictions counseling, you're a liar. I mean, so I think every single one of us who sees clients, works with clients, are career counselors and addictions counselors. We probably just need to admit that to ourselves and like get our heads wrapped around it because time and time again, people are like, I don't even know what those theories are. I'm like, well, you probably should because most of your clients are going to have some kind of life altering issue related to their career, to their work lives and or to the addiction they picked up to deal with it. So you should probably get on that. You know, Eric, amazing how our life paths have crossed. I worked for an EAP for most of my doctoral career, and that was a good six, seven years. And one of the tasks that I was given, because we would do anything anybody asked, we would sell anything anybody would ask, is plant closings and meeting with groups and teams of people when their plant was closing. Man, you deal with a lot of anger. You deal with a lot of emotions with that, but you also deal with a lot of that outplacement stuff as part of it. Where are they going to go? How are they going to get help? One of the first courses I taught was career counseling. And I inherited that one at my first institution. And I have a real appreciation for the different counseling theories. One of the things, and I don't know if it's gotten any better over the years, that I thought was poor about it was the lack of application models in the sense of you could teach the students the theories and the different ways of looking at careers with rainbows and crystallization and all those fun terms that they use in career counseling. But nobody really talks about how do you do it? You know, often it was give them an assessment, talk to them, let them go. And there's a whole, I think, integrative, holistic way to kind of bring that into people's lives. But I haven't, and I'm sure some of the listeners will correct me on this. I haven't seen that model presented as a way to instruct students. This is how you do career counseling. So that's been my frustration with it. Oh, these are great answers and they help me. And I, I am thinking mostly of people who identify as counseling psychologists who I know, and, and they just tell me, oh, I'm so passionate about it. I'm so passionate about it. And I'm like, well, how many clients do you see? And then they look at me like I just dropped a pound of heroin on the table. And I'm like, what? And I say, no, they, they haven't seen clients this century. You know, I, I think of one guy and I will do a shout out. He was just delightful. I was a part-timer at John Carroll University. And Bob Wendell, he was a very successful businessman, came back and got his counseling degree, but he had a passion for career counseling. And he said to me, this was in the 90s, okay, these are the people who need the counseling, don't have any money because they're unemployed. Said, you know, I want to work with companies and he worked with the APs. He set up a practice and he did phenomenal work. And to me, that was like a passion for career counseling. 
writing articles that help people go to sleep with their Ambien, that is not a passion for career counseling as far as I, I, I'm concerned. But that's just perhaps I'm being cruel, unjust, and, and, and a little bit, uh, you know, harsh. Anyway, next question, I think, goes to Gina. It does. So I want to know, what is an experience that was so jarring it shifted how you think of a specific place. This can be good or bad. All right. So I'm sure there's like many more answers to this. And that's the one frustration I actually have with this podcast is sometimes I come up with the answer and then like five minutes after we sign off, I'm like, oh my goodness, that one was staring me in the face the whole time. And that's like a better answer that fits me better. But at the moment, I'll just go with pops in my head first. My family, since I was maybe 10 years old, started to go to Hilton Head, South Carolina. There were trips that were made when I was younger that were really fun and great. But there was this time when I was really sick between ages like 25 and 30, also trying to go to law school at the same time and trying to finish papers for law school while starting the vacation to Hilton Head. And the thing is, is because I was sick, there were also physical symptoms that were coming along. And I was always kind of of the mind of, let me just get to Hilton Head and I'm going to feel better. But there were these two, two times, two trips going that it was just awful. I was spending the whole time writing papers, trying to go to the staples and, and get them sent back to my professor. I mean, it was just, it was bad because I was there with mom trying to enjoy the time with mom. And I had to keep telling her to leave so I could just, I'm sorry, I have to finish writing this. I promise tomorrow we'll do things together. So it kind of put, you know, a dark cloud over going to Hilton Head. But then as I got better and things started to improve, getting to go again, it changed it back. And now there's like a lot of great memories from like the last 10 years or so, 12 years of going once or twice a year. And it's just been actually really nice to kind of restory, be able to restory Hilton Head again and enjoy it and not feel senses of guilt and sadness and just wasted time and whatever else was going on at the time there. And to just have a lot of great memories and to make it what you kind of hope for, for, for vacation. Yeah. So for mine, uh, I'm going to tell you about Kelly's Creek, West Virginia. My great grandmother, her name was Virginia Dunlap. She had a baker's dozen children. My grandmother was 10th. I used to stay with her quite a bit. And, you know, she wasn't a big fan of most of the grandchildren. Like, I think she was drawn to me because I was quiet. I would read. I didn't really need much. You know, I didn't cause a whole lot of fuss. And that was her thing, right? So I was chill. We could play games. Uh, she could go off and do her thing. And, and it was fine. I was nine or 10 years old and I walk outside and you have to imagine this place that's, there's no indoor plumbing at this point. There's just, you know, the house that my great grandfather built and I walk outside and there's, at my age, look like a huge snake, right? And I was paralyzed, just terrified. So I yell for her. I scream for her. There's nobody but me in her home. And, you know, I'm like trying to back up from the snake and I hear her coming and, you know, she, she at times, well, let's be honest. She, she used swear words like it and the, right? Like she's, those were her comfort words. So usually you heard her coming. I heard nothing but like scampering feet. And then this explosion from behind me and I freeze and I feel like I'm going to throw up and I turn around and here is my 80 year old grandmother with an over under shotgun having blown this snake halfway across the drive <laughs> just you know and this it's she's holding it and the thing's smoking and if you can imagine just this 80 year old woman you know in her 80s frail looking with an over under and she's you know i hate snakes and she just walks back in the house you know and you know for me after i got over it it always seemed like kind of a scary place and then after that i didn't quite worry so much Right. I knew I could stay there and Granny would pretty much take care of it. So we, we, we were close with one another after that. I stayed a lot more after that particular event, but uh, it was something that made me a lot more comfortable being somewhere that I felt really out of my element. 
I love that idea of feeling so protected that 80 year old grandma is going to come out with a shotgun and just blow the snake to smithereens. I pretty much love that story, Eric. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I've, I've struggled of how I want to answer this question. And so I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about a couple of places where I surprisingly felt really comfortable that were surprising that I felt like I was at home the minute I went there. One of them is England. The very first time I ever went to England, I just, I felt like it was like, it was good. It was like getting off the plane in Orlando and getting in the car and driving an hour and a half to my mom's house when I was growing up. It was that kind of a comfort to me. And when I was back there in the summer of 2019, we were staying at this country inn by where our friends live and my mom was in napping and I'm, I was sitting out at one of the tables and, you know, people had come out and gone back in and I'm reading a book and it just felt like the most normal thing in the world. Like it did not feel like I had just gone 6,000 miles. It felt like I was sitting in the backyard at my family's house or something, you know? Interestingly, the exact same thing happened with, for me throughout Greece. I felt just the minute I got there, I just, I felt completely comfortable. I can hardly understand anything that's being said around me. And I felt completely comfortable. So this really isn't about jarring, but like maybe it was jarring that I felt so surprised to be in these other lands that are completely foreign to my mind and my body in this lifetime and being in them felt completely normal. Just, you know, walking around, reading a book, you know, going out back with, you know, with folks and having a beer or whatever the case may be and it feeling completely cool, you know? So that's me for that one. You know, uh, this question, or at least the way I read it, made me think about deeply emotional experiences that I've had in my life that are positive and kind of shape who I am and, and how I think about the world. There's a concept called the Stendhal syndrome. I don't know if you've heard about it. It is a experience that one has that you sort of feel completely connected with people, experiences in the universe. It's it's related to a church or a, a religious site in Italy or Venice where some famous folks are buried and people have had this experience of just being overcome with emotion in that experience. So I've always thought that that concept was, was powerful and meaningful. The closest I got to that, I think, was visiting the Blue Mosque or Sultan Ahmet in Turkey near sundown, going into the mosque and leaving it to the surrounding areas where there were families all over the place and sun went down and all of them sat down with blankets and food and they were breaking fast during Ramadan and just being surrounded, you know, not being Muslim myself, being surrounded by everybody who is in the area that's in the force, as far as I can see in this area, sitting down, breaking bread together and ending their day together like that. Uh, the combination of being in the mosque and being in that area and seeing that happen was just, uh, has shaped my whole being in a lot of ways um, since then. So that's my experience. That's what it immediately came to mind when I read this question. Marty, you've given me a construct for my answer because I love that idea. I'll look that up. I'll have to look into that Stendhal syndrome. Mine, this was a, and there, there's a kind of couple parts to it, but the second time I was in Hope, British Columbia, I was just really enjoying the town and the people. And I was at this hotel and you know, I'm like 25. I fell in love with a server. And of course the server had a lover, whatever. But it was the point of just connecting and talking. And Canadians are polite. So I was dumped very politely. But I was also like, it was fine. Nothing else had to happen. It was the human experience of, you know, like falling in love and being in this place where I just felt this is a wonderful place. And I was like, I, I want to go back there again. And I, I intend to, as you all know. But what's really funny is I've had this post-COVID syndrome where I've got fatigue and mood swings. My sleep's all screwed up. My ringing in my ears is louder. 
And I was up at like four in the morning and I was like, "Eh, I'm up. So I was having a snack and channel surfing and uh, it was Rambo First Blood, not a film that I would think of as something I'm terribly attracted to, but I'm watching the scene and I'm like, I know that town, that's Hope. That's Hope Canada, that's British Columbia for God's sake. And I looked it up, I, I said, that's the hotel where I fell in love, isn't that delightful? And so I saw it, you know, in a different way. So even all of my love of things Canada, my experience in Hope, British Columbia, even managed to help me like a a Rambo movie. So that's something, I think, or not. (laughs) So I think I'm the only one who took this in a different way. (laughs) My experiences are more overwhelmingly negative. Um, But so I'll start with the story. So I grew up in a kind of rural area with septic tanks and lots of land and these kinds of dirt roads, winding roads, all of that stuff. So it was a great area. It was fine. Everything was good. One time I did fall in a septic tank on accident, which is quite jarring. And still to this day, we're looking at new homes now, also in another rural area. And the first thing that I said to the realtor was, I absolutely cannot have a septic tank. We have to be on city sewer because of that completely jarring, horrible experience. I was dressed as a bumblebee too. So I hate Halloween. This is that whole thing. Anyway, so falling in a septic tank, it was jarring. Also dressed as a bumblebee, also equally jarring. But that actually wasn't the whole point of this story. So the whole point of the story was to describe where I grew up. So there's so many different jarring experiences within the umbrella of this massively long winding road story. So that's a septic tank story. So it's a rural area. It's considered pretty safe. Lots of, you know, homes that are very spread out and very safe. Like I've never had an issue. We would stay out. We would run barefoot across the neighborhood and never had an issue. So one night, this was like two years ago, it was around Christmas time. And my family always does a big celebration for Christmas. And we were out there and my car was parked on the driveway. And I have a garage door opener for my parents' garage. And then I had our garage door opener for our house. So I parked my car there. We go inside, we have Christmas, whatever. We do all of our celebrations and life is happening. And we go to bed and I've got these two dogs that are so loud. And we go to bed and they're always barking, but they usually don't bark in the middle of the night. And so we go to bed and it's now like 4 a.m. And one of the dogs starts barking uncontrollably. And I'm like, I'm going to kill that damn dog if it's the last thing I do, because we had a baby at the time too. So I was extremely exhausted. And so I sit up in bed and I'm like, Don, we got to go like check what McDuff is doing down there. He's very loud. And Don's like, just don't worry about it. He'll quiet down, like go back to bed. So I'm like, considering getting out of bed, I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, no, he's right. Like McDuff will calm down. McDuff's not calming down. So then two hours pass and my mom comes barging into our room at 6 a.m. And I'm like, what is wrong with this family? The dog is trying to keep me up. The kids kept me up all night. Now my mom's barging into this room and she's like, someone stole all our cars. (laughs) And I'm like, what? She's like gone crazy. This is nuts. And I'm like, I'm going back to bed. And she's like, no, no, you have to get up and see like someone stole all of our cars. So we go downstairs and sure enough, both garage doors are open. My parents have two Mercedes Benzes gone and my car is broken into, but not gone because I just have a Toyota. So it wasn't really worth it. So that was a very jarring experience. And now I just can't look at my parents' house the same way because we've never had break-ins. We've never had anything. And now two Mercedes Benzes have gone and we probably should kill McDuff, but he did save us that night. So there we have it. Uh, calm down, Gina. It will be okay. Don't re-traumatize yourself. Uh, that's the last question, but we do have time for a final shot. And the final shot question is, what makes you lose track of time? Now it's Nora. Before it was video games and doing work. My spouse no question. When she asks, you want to have another cup of coffee? I know I'm going to be late. Pretty much everything. ADHD. Can't help it. You might be in my camp, Jen. I am one of the 38% of people with ADHD who have chronesthesia. I don't track time. 
it's all happening at once for me, you know, and when I think of like time 15 years old, or when I think of my aspirations for the future, it's all the freaking same, which is kind of a fun way to go through the day, but very annoying to other people. It's anything uh, I get into the zone with, you know, that moment where you're for work, it's design or audio editing or website work, none of which they're paying me to do in terms of my job. I'm supposed to be teaching and writing and all of that. For leisure, it's movie theaters. Get me in a movie theater and I lose track of time. And that's why movie theaters are so much fun for me. They're trying to get away from things. Thanks to the squad, Elliot, Gina, Stephanie, Jen, and Eric. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Now, you've heard us mention we have a new show called Counseling Delphi, which is a monthly video live stream that occurs on Sunday nights once a month. And you can watch the live stream on YouTube. It's recorded there and stored there on our channel. And the live stream component allows you to ask questions to the show through the the show website. You can also submit questions at counselingdelphi.net. Shows will be available for later viewing in real time with real-time transcription. The audio from the live stream is converted then into an audio podcast to be released to all major podcast services. Gina did our second show. Our first show was on distance counseling, and that's on YouTube and also as part of the podcast. Gina did our second show with a panel on neuroscience and counseling, and that's on YouTube. And the podcast was just sent out. So that's also available. You can find links to the podcast and the recorded live stream at counselingdelphi.net. Our next Counseling Delphi show is with Elliot Ingersoll. He's going to be hosting the topic of treatment with psychedelic drugs, and that's going to be live streamed on Sunday, May 30th. Our theme music is from Menage en Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim. Thank you.